Welcome to Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World, a production of the Vandenberg Coalition, where we shift the focus beyond the Indo-Pacific and into various regions around the world where the CCP continues to threaten the interests of the United States. The Vandenberg Coalition is a nonpartisan network dedicated to protecting American security, prosperity, and freedom through robust analysis of pressing national security threats and the promotion of a strong and proud American foreign policy. My name is Carrie Filippetti, and alongside leading experts, we are reshaping the conversation around the China challenge. In this episode, we speak with Lisa Curtis, Senior Fellow and Director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at Center for New American Security and former official in the National Security Council, and Nargis Nehan, a politician and women's rights activist who previously served as Afghanistan's Acting Minister of Mines and Petroleum from 2017 to 2019 on the road ahead, China's footprint in South Asia. We hope you enjoy. So thank you both for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. So I want to start just with a level set. Not all of our audience members will know specifically what China has done in this region. Um, so maybe to start, Lisa, what's sort of the recent history of China's role in South Asia and how has it evolved over, say, the last two decades? Well, I would say over the last 15 years, China has taken a much greater interest in South Asia. China has always had a close relationship with Pakistan going back to, you know, the 1960s. Uh, they uh, have a, a close defense and security relationship. Um, China has also uh, exported um, missiles going against the missile technology control regime. It's exported M11 missiles to Pakistan. It's helped Pakistan with its uh, civilian nuclear program. Uh, so there's been a very close strategic and security relationship between China and Pakistan going back to the 1960s. And of course, part of the motivation for China is to uh, try to offset Indian power in the region or to, to keep India off balance. So that's that's been there over the decades. But over the last, I would say, 15, 20 years, China's taken a much greater interest in developing its relationships with Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, those countries immediately surrounding India. And again, I think China is trying to enhance its uh, overall influence in South Asia, just as its military and economic um, and political might are growing. It's it's just expanding um, outside of its traditional kind of, you know, uh, region of, of influence, um, but also to compete with India. I think it, it directly wants to compete with India and sort of undermine India's traditional uh, influence um, among its South Asian neighbors. And the South Asian states... Um, are welcoming China's role because um, it helps them to be able to leverage their ties with India because they they have felt uh, that they have no other options and India has had um, a lot of influence in their country so they see China as being able to you know play China and India off each other so they sort of are welcoming this increased um, attention uh, from China. Nargis, I, I want to ask you about um, 
China's role in, in Afghanistan over the years. But but before I do, I just want to pick up on you mentioned how this is sort of a counterweight to Indian influence in the region. Typically in these series, we've spoken about um, China sort of uh, creating a, a counterweight to American influence. How much do you think America factors into their decisions of who to make alliances with in South Asia? Or do you think it really is primarily sort of a, a counterweight to India? I think it's primarily to be a counterweight, <clears throat> excuse me, to India, um, because, you know, the U.S. Uh, does have strong relationships with these countries. Um, but I think I think it's more about um, competing with India's influence, uh, you know, right now. And, you know, another part of this is gaining access to resources and also strategic uh, resources such as ports. And that's what we've seen, particularly with uh, the Hambad Tota port in Sri Lanka, where China um, invested in this port that really uh, was not economically uh, viable. And, you know, India had been invited in to invest in the uh, port, you know, many years ago, but decided not to because it wasn't financially viable, didn't make a, a lot of sense from an economic standpoint. However, China did. And now uh, we see that Sri Lanka has had to provide a 99-year lease to China over this port um, because they became so indebted to China uh, because it, it was not a productive investment and they, they couldn't uh, pay the Chinese loans back. So now China essentially, you know, has control over a port, you know, right off the Indian coast, very, very near India. So it is very much a strategic port for the Chinese. In fact, they docked a surveillance vessel in that port uh, just last year, just a year ago, uh, much to India's chagrin. Mm -hmm. India uh, was very wary of this sophisticated surveillance vessel um, being deployed uh, very close uh, to India and its facilities. Uh, but Sri Lanka could do nothing to stop it because they they are so indebted to the Chinese. Um, a large percentage of their loans are owed to China. Um, so China has really been able to, to make inroads into these countries uh, right off the coast of India and uh, grow its influence. This also is not helpful for the United States, of course. Um, so now the United States and India are motivated to work together to counter this growing Chinese influence and to work together on things like maritime domain awareness and maritime security uh, to to and and to support countries in providing you know their needs so that they are not they don't become overly dependent on China um, for things like you know training and Coast Guard assistance um, uh, and these kinds of things. So it really. Um, is an opportunity, I think, for the U.S. and India to work more closely uh, to try to lessen Chinese influence in the Indian Ocean region. So I definitely want us to talk a lot about about India and also to come back to this question of um, what people call debt trap diplomacy, which is something we've spoken about um, in our Latin America episode. Um, but before we do, um, Nargis, it, what is the sort of recent history of China, specifically as it relates to Afghanistan, and how have you seen that change or not since the U.S. U.S. withdrawal? Uh, well, 
At the time that I was engaged in the development of Afghanistan, working in the public sector and as well as the, uh, the non-governmental sector, what actually I saw that uh, before 15 August, because of the high-level engagement of the U.S. and all its allies in Afghanistan, then China was engaged in Afghanistan. Uh, they were interacting with Afghans, but they would never come forward and provide any kind of assistance for Afghanistan because somehow they felt that it's the invasion of the U.S. and its U.S. responsibility and why should they support the U.S. invasion and engagement in Afghanistan. But they also had not cut their ties with Afghanistan. So they were having regular delegations coming to Afghanistan. They were waiting with um, different uh, government officials in Afghanistan. They were inviting different government officials in Afghanistan. They were meeting with oppositions, with different political groups. And even they tried to have some level of engagement with the Taliban before in August uh, when the Taliban took power in Afghanistan. So, and then the interesting part was that uh, they never invested in Afghanistan. They never provided any kind of assistance in Afghanistan. Even the big projects and concessions that they got, for example, in the mining sector, they never invested on that. They were focusing on the extraction, but when it was coming to um, investment and development of the field, they were not interested in that. But they made sure that they get some important concessions. For example, they had the world's best um, open mines reserves concession in Afghanistan, but they never invested on that, but they do have the contract uh, with themselves. Uh, but they were always coming forward, especially their state-owned enterprises and as well as their private companies, and they were competing in different bids. So they were engaged in uh, construction of roads, uh, construction of uh, uh, you know, different infrastructure in Afghanistan, for which they were getting paid and they were, um, they were economically benefiting from that, and return not doing anything for Afghan people. So that was the relationship of China with Afghans and Afghanistan uh, 10, 15 August 2021. Now, right after August 2021, when the U.S. and allies withdrew from Afghanistan, uh, uh, leaving behind a huge vacuum uh, in the region, uh, China uh, suddenly stepped in and they began to send delegation to Afghanistan. Uh, they helped regular. They are still having regular meetings with the Taliban. Uh, they have provided uh, several offers, especially to the Ministry of Mines of Afghanistan. Uh, for getting some mining concessions. They resumed uh, one of their uh, oil and gas fleet activity. And as far as I know, they are right now in the process of negotiating the proper concession uh, terms and condition with the, with the Taliban to be able to resolve that so that they can also start their activities there. They have also taken samples of lithiums from, as far as I know, three different provinces. And right now they are just investigating and later on uh, they might come with offers in those fields as well. Uh, they're, for the first time in the last 20 years, uh, their Ministry of Foreign Affairs is going public and is talking about um, Afghanistan uh, being managed and being ruled by its own people and making its own decision. And we are very happy about the changes that has um, uh, come in Afghanistan because they see the vacuum. They see that they have uh, a, a group, a regime uh, in control in Afghanistan they can, that they can easily deal with and they can drive with a very small amount of money and uh, there is no accountability from them. Uh, where actually it was not the case previously because we had free media, we had civil society, we had check and balance of parliament and government that they were questioning each and every decisions that uh, the government was, make, was making. Now that is totally gone. So that has created green field for them 
and for their engagement and investment in Afghanistan. Now, the tragedy is that uh, before withdrawal of the U.S. and before the peace talks, there were many times that actually we had discussions with officials and think tanks of the U.S. and as well as European countries. And we did warn them that by leaving Afghanistan, you're creating a vacuum which will be filled by the Chinese. I always laugh and tell the American colleagues and folks and friends that, look, you came for 20 years, you built roads, you uh, brought electricity in Afghanistan, you developed the infrastructure of Afghanistan, and handing over everything after 20 years for China so that they can use that for their activities in Afghanistan. You did the hard work, but instead of cultivating and benefiting from that, you just left it, and now Chinese are using that. We find them very, very strategic in terms of their engagement and being much more familiar in the, with the regional countries and politics when we compare their engagement in the region uh, and the U.S. So if we're looking at um, prior to America's sort of formal departure, there were about, I think it was 2,500 American troops or so that, that we had in Afghanistan. Is it your view that if we had just kept those 2,500 there, um, that we would be looking at a very different situation as it as it relates to China's investment in Afghanistan? The situation would have been really different if we had not only the 2,500 U.S. troops in Afghanistan, uh, even less than that, uh, but if the assistance to the Afghan National Security Forces would have continued so that they, uh, they, they were supported to continue their operation, if the peace deal was not rushed, and irresponsibly signed in Doha, uh, which basically laid the foundation for handover of Afghanistan. And if the, even, I keep on saying that even if the president had run away from uh, Afghanistan on 15 August, and instead of allowing Taliban to come and take over uh, uh, Kabul and packing their bags and leaving the embassies, all the embassies within a few hours, they could have said that, okay, let's, uh, we did have uh, former president um, Karzai, inside Afghanistan. We had the chief executive officer, Dr. Abdullah, inside Afghanistan. They could have worked with those two and tell them that, okay, let's announce a state of emergency and tell Taliban that you do not enter uh, Kabul. We are going to take security of Kabul. But then let's discuss on uh, um, on uh, establishment of an immediate transitional government that actually, beside that, we can negotiate uh, for a political settlement. That instead of handing over everything to uh, uh, to to the to the Taliban and uh, you know and, and 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 creating the vacuum by not only absence of the international actors but also absence of all of officials, women's rights activists, journalists, all those people that they could have countered and they could have worked on the ground. By we would not have created that vacuum. So all these players would have been on the field. And we all could have hoped that we create a plat uh, a political pathway and a political settlement that Taliban would have been part of that, but Taliban would not have controlled the whole country. And that would have given us more leverage to be able to change things, to be able to hold into account instead of leaving everything, handing over everything to them. And now I can see that everybody's questioning, what do we do about the situation? Taliban has full control of the country. We don't know how to deal with the situation if we don't engage with it. When you you created that situation yourself, Lisa, agree, disagree. So I agree with much of what Nargis has said. Um, I agree that the U.S. should have kept a, a small presence um, in Afghanistan, and that would have made a great difference. I think keeping 
um, the the base open, um, the Bagram Air Base open would have made uh, a huge difference as well, um, and keeping a limited number of troops there. And that's something I certainly supported. I think it's something uh, U.S. military leaders were trying to convince President Biden to do. But unfortunately, he made a different decision. So I agree with Nargis on that. Um, I also agree that the uh, Doha deal that was made was a very weak deal. It made far too many concessions to the Taliban. And uh, it basically demoralized the Afghan government and the Afghan security forces um, and was not really a peace deal. It was really a withdrawal agreement that the U.S. made with the Taliban. And the only thing it uh, succeeded in doing was uh, guaranteeing that the Taliban were not shooting U.S. soldiers on their way out. So it was really a withdrawal uh, deal. It was not a peace agreement, uh, and it did not facilitate any kind of um, transfer to an interim government or any kind of peaceful transition uh, in the country. So I think I would I would disagree slightly that once U.S. troops were out of the country, I think it was very difficult for the U.S. to have any influence on the political situation in Kabul. I don't think that the U.S. could have negotiated something which brought Karzai or Abdul Abdullah into some kind of interim government. The U.S. just did not have the leverage once it pulled U.S. troops out. So I think that that would be the only uh, point of disagreement. Um, but one thing that I was arguing when I was in the administration working at the National Security Council um, during, uh, you know, the 2017 to 2021 period was that, you know, if we determined the Taliban were not serious in making a peace agreement or some kind of power sharing arrangement with other Afghans, then the U.S. should simply move to some kind of plan B. Uh, if, you know, President Trump was insistent on removing U.S. troops, then we should negotiate such a withdrawal directly with the Ghani government and not have this fake peace deal, which looked as if the U.S. was simply switching horses midstream and sort of handing the country to the Taliban. I, I don't think that was helpful. I don't think it was good for uh, U.S. national security interests, certainly not good for the Afghans, as we can see now clearly. Um, one of the things that I have always been surprised by is when you look at American foreign policy, oftentimes we'll talk about the importance of other countries being democracies like us. Not always, but typically that's something that that matters to us. And we like dealing with um, uh, with allies and with people that we can kind of relate to culturally. It strikes me, though, that the CCP and the Taliban are sort of what I might describe as odd bedfellows, right? You have, on the one hand, a, a group of fundamentalist Islamic uh, radicals, and on the other hand, you have basically an atheist uh, um, ideological um, regime. And so, Nargis, maybe to start with you, do you think that this cultural difference matters either now or will matter in the future? Or do you think that they're just putting that aside to sort of push for separate set of shared interests? Um, I think the reason that the, uh, uh, that China has not yet uh, officially recognized uh, uh, a regime of the Taliban is because of the, um, of the fear of uh, these differences that they see that they have for the Taliban. Uh, and also uh, the lack of trust that they have between them and the Taliban, because they do think that, okay, if we recognize their government once and then later on, 
they will build stronger relation with the U.S. Then and they will not collaborate with us. How are we going to deal with that situation? Um, so um, on one hand, but then we also have to look at that. You know, the Taliban they are trying to play very smart, and um, and on one hand they want to make sure that they have good relation with China and they have economic activities with China. Um, but then on the other hand, they also want to make sure that they maintain some level of relationship with the Taliban so that they can receive the with the with the US so that they can receive the financial assistance from the US. And they know very well that without US support the, the government and regime will not be recognized by the international community. So they are trying to make sure that they have their relation with uh, uh, with both of them and somehow you like know, you use also that as use that as a leverage um, against uh, uh, one another. So they're trying to play that uh, very smart, but China is also very smart. So they are engaging with them, uh, and they are uh, actually sending delegations to Afghanistan. They are providing some assistance for the Taliban to be able to build that trust and tell them that okay, we can be a better partner for you uh, in comparison to to the US. Now the problem with the US. Uh, um, one thing that um, Lisa you mentioned about uh, lack of the troops uh, not being influenced, I think um, for knowing the, uh, the influence of the U.S. Or, uh, and the international community, the Taliban would still have taken U.S. seriously if the U.S. not have their troops on the ground because they know that, you know, like um, uh, um, lack of collaboration with the U.S., what does that mean? So they knew that. Uh, the problem that we faced actually was that there was no interest on the U.S. side to actually listen to Athens and even listen about, from those groups that they were questioning the whole peace process that uh, they were calling it, as you said, the withdrawal process, but they were calling it peace process. I remember we had so many meetings with uh, Ambassador Kalinza that I was part of, but we were saying that, okay, where is the accountability mechanism? How do you trust Taliban that on one hand, they have one group of them negotiating a peace deal with you in Doha, but then their food soldiers are getting instruction from the same leadership and they continue their suicide attacks and taking district of it. Can you stop that? Can you hold them to account? If you can't hold them to account now that you haven't signed them, what is the guarantee that you, know, you can hold them to account later on? We warned them many, many times. There are written documents, written papers, statements that we have shared our concern, everything many, many times with the decisions making and policy makers with the U.S. But unfortunately, they were so focused on withdrawal and this whole romanticizing of Taliban 2.0 that they have changed, they have become moderate, and we can work things out with them. And perhaps they can be a much more effective and less, less uh, expensive um, partner for us on the ground in comparison to the Republic. So, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry to say that people are still romanticizing the Taliban. Uh, people inside the Biden administration, you know, also think that, you know, the the U.S. can deal with the Taliban. Uh, they think the U.S. can cooperate with the Taliban on counterterrorism initiatives. And that's only because the U.S. and Taliban both happen to oppose ISIS-K or ISKP, Islamic State Khorasan Province. Um but just because both of us oppose that group does not mean that the Taliban will be good counterterrorism partners for the United States. Number one, the Taliban is still closely allied with al-Qaeda. And even though al-Qaeda is lying yeah. low, 
We know from reports that the UN has put out recently, the UN Sanctions Monitoring Committee, that uh, Al-Qaeda-linked leaders are being put in positions of power within the Taliban administration and that they continue to have training camps uh, and they continue to exist. So the Taliban has not changed. You're, You're right, Nargis. And there was naive people in the Trump administration, and I think there's naive people also in the Biden administration. And it's very unfortunate. It's uh, people like to operate on their wishful thinking more than the facts on the ground, because yeah. it's been two years since we, uh, you know, the, the Taliban took over the country and the U.S. has been trying to engage. And the Taliban's policies towards the women have gotten even worse. And uh, the fact that women past the sixth grade or young girls past the sixth grade cannot go to school. Young women cannot attend universities, barely leave their homes, not hold most jobs. Um, It's really a horrendous human rights situation. So I think anybody who tries to agree that or tries to argue that the Taliban will be any different now than they were in the 1990s, um, they're just not looking at the data and the facts on the ground. Well, and and just to say to, to, to add one point, Taliban are different a little bit than the first time. But then the problem is that it's worse. It's not that they're different in a better way. I'll give you a few examples. For example, at last time, they never prohibited women from working in angels and I angels. They never banned women from working with UN agencies. Uh, they were saying that, okay, there should be separate offices. You need to observe a job, but you women were working. My own sister was working with a Danish organization uh, at that time. And she was traveling for three visits uh, to provinces. She was sometimes taking my younger brother with herself and sometimes my father with herself. But she was working. She was not bad. And then last time, the Taliban never interfered in the activities of the angels that they were providing services for the people uh, and they were allowing them so that they could operate but this time they are interfering in their activities they are telling they are they are even looking at the list of the recipients of the assistance they are trying to prioritize pressure them the angels and UN agencies that they should provide first support to their soldiers then to other communities regardless of you know, who is in the needs so thing yet they do have change and they are then, like the Chinese that you're using the infrastructure right now or engaging in Afghanistan, the Taliban are also using those institutions and systems that we have created in the last 20 years for controlling people, for uh, for uh, for uh, for institutionalizing their own power and serving their own foot soldiers rather than looking after the people. So yeah, there is that that little change, but that's actually for worse. As someone that I'm not from U.S. But as someone that I saw engagement of U.S., and I remember that how people were talking in different circles about the U.S. before the engagement, their engagement in Afghanistan, during their engagement in Afghanistan, and after withdrawal, there's mm-hmm. one thing that I think that there's two questions that I have that I really wish that mm-hmm. we ask those questions, and I prefer to ask them more from U.S. colleagues and talks. One is that, where is the civil society of the U.S.? I mean, decisions that are made regarding Afghanistan are so irresponsible. And as a result of that, today we have a gender apartheid in Afghanistan, gender persecution in Afghanistan. 
where is the civil society to hold President Biden and Trump and all those that they advised them for these decisions to account? Because when it, we had a very vibrant civil society despite all the restrictions in Afghanistan, and still we do. Beside the Taliban and our own politicians, we also hold the U.S. options into account in terms of the engagement with Taliban. But we don't see any advice or anything coming from the U.S. civil society. That's one question that I think we need to ask more if we want to prevent these kind of irresponsible decisions in the future. The second question that I have is that, do we really not see the role of the technology, connectivity, social media, that the irresponsible withdrawal that you had from Afghanistan, how much this has damaged the image of the U.S.? Because people have access to information, they are connected. So whatever decisions are made, they are not just going unobserved like that, you like a small group of people that they are involved in politics or policies they would know and others would not know. Today, each and every one in Afghanistan knows what the U.S. has done to us. And everybody is questioning that. You know, like, is this how you're dealing with your allies on the ground? I was going to say, the U.S. Congress has been um, relatively active on Afghanistan. Uh, people like Congressman McCall, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, recently wrote a letter to Secretary Blinken um, opposing sending any U.S. officials into Afghanistan for meetings with the Taliban. Um, there have also been some hearings that have been held uh, looking at how the withdrawal was handled. Uh, so I think that the U.S. Congress is engaged in trying to hold account um, uh, the officials that were involved in some of these very bad decisions. One thing that I've argued um, is that there needs to be more attention on how the U.S. Uh, peace process was handled, how uh, things were happening during that 2019-2020 period when Ambassador Khalilzad was leading negotiations with the Taliban. Um, because I know, having been at the National Security Council, that uh, once Ambassador Bolton left, he, uh, he had been the National Security Advisor, he left in September 2019. Once he left, there was no structured National Security Council process on the Taliban negotiations. It was handled, you know, very closely with Ambassador Khalilzad and making, you know, all of the decisions without the benefit of consultations with the wider U.S. government, with other experts um, on the issue within the U.S. government. So I think this is something that needs to be looked at very carefully. And lastly, just to mention, of course, there's the Afghanistan War Commission that's been established, whose um, mandate is to look at the handling of the U.S. Uh, uh, war in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. I think they're mandated to look at everything that happened up until the withdrawal in August 2021. So there are efforts being made, Dargis, to hold people to account for uh, some of the very bad decision-making made on Afghanistan. And I, I do want to go back to Nargis, your your excellent point about American credibility and the sort of image that I think so many of America's allies have now is, you know, of, of, of our departure. And that's their image of sort of the American military. And I don't think that that has been corrected to date um, for many of our foreign partners. 
Before we get to that, I want to I want to pivot a little bit. Nargis, you were talking about how Afghanistan is sort of relatively new to China's portfolio in the region. It, it happened after America's withdrawal. So that's really within the last two years. I want to ask um, Lisa Yu about about Pakistan. So Pakistan obviously has a much more robust relationship, historical relationship with China as it relates to the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and in, in some respects, um, China's uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is sort of like the cornerstone of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. So um, you mentioned a, a little bit, you alluded to the, uh, the way in which uh, China has used uh, Sri Lankan debt uh, to try to sort of force, uh, force their perspectives on them. Um, it seems to be the same in, in Pakistan. You're talking about, I think, $31 billion in debt to China. How does China view the relative importance of Pakistan to its sort of um, broader relationships in South Asia? Well, the China-Pakistan economic corridor that you talked about is the large, single largest investment in any one country of um, China's BRI initiative. Um, and it was really launched almost a decade ago um, under former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. And at the time, I think there was a great deal of enthusiasm trying to talking about, you know, investing 60 billion, I think they said uh, they were going to invest in Pakistan in energy projects and transportation um, and other issues. And certainly Pakistan has many uh, energy challenges. Um, and so I think there was this naive hope that, you know, uh, China was going to come in and, and you know, change the world for Pakistan and Pakistan's economy would turn around. Well, that certainly hasn't happened. In fact, Pakistan is, is economy is is doing uh, quite badly right now. They, they were able to secure the uh, IMF loan, but that looked shaky uh, for a long time. Uh, so a lot of um, political unrest in, in Pakistan due to the deteriorating economic situation. So certainly... China's BRI investments have not really paid off for Pakistan um, in any significant way. And I think there's much more skepticism about Chinese promises of investment now than there was 10 years ago in Pakistan. Um, so, you know, I think uh, there there is concern that Pakistan will go down a similar road to Sri Lanka in terms of China getting gaining more and more strategic influence in the country. Um, and that's why I think it, it was helpful that the IMF went ahead and extended the loan. And I think the U.S. you know should remain engaged with Pakistan's. Certainly we shouldn't be, you know, handing over the kind of, you know, large scale military assistance that we did for so many years that was suspended during the Trump administration. In January of 2018, finally, the billions that had been supplied to the Pakistan military was halted. Um, but at the same time, we don't want China to be the only you know, friend of Pakistan. Um, I think it's better for the U.S. to have some investment, some relationship with Pakistan um, in order to not allow the Chinese to have too much leverage over the country. And Pakistanis want this. They, they want um, a good relationship with the U.S. They don't want to have to be solely reliant on China. Do you think that this sort of the relationship with Pakistan, the relationship with Sri Lanka, the idea of what we might call debt trap diplomacy, do you view that in South Asia as sort of like this happy accident for China that they just sort of wandered into it? Or do you think this is an intentional strategy for them 
to, you know, be owed so much money by these countries that they're then sort of forced to bow to the will of China. Look, I know there's been sort of a backlash against this idea of debt trap diplomacy and people saying this was not China's intent. It just happened. Maybe so. I don't I can't say for sure. But look, the result is the same. The result is that China now has control over a strategic asset. So whether or not it's by design, the result is is that, yes, they they have trapped the Sri Lankans into having to support whatever China wants to do at that port. And we saw that firsthand a year ago when China docked its surveillance vessel there. And the Sri Lankans clearly did not want that to happen, but there was nothing they could do about it. Um, so I think it's important to remember that China is trying to develop strategic assets in the Indian Ocean region um, and that uh, this is something that the U.S. and India both need to counter. Um, and whatever we want to call it, uh, they have been able to leverage these so-called BRI investments, which are really loans, uh, to their advantage, to their strategic advantage and to the disadvantage disadvantage of the countries themselves, the countries themselves lose their sovereignty and independence um, and ability to make their own foreign policy decisions. You know, for instance, Sri Lanka uh, values its relationship with India, did not want to anger India by allowing this vessel, but again, had no choice. So I think this is really about countries being able to maintain their own sovereignty, independence, um, and, you know, independent decision-making um, on their own affairs. And China is whittling away at that. In South Asia, they um, have already done it in Sri Lanka. Uh, Bangladesh, uh, you know, Bangladesh has been better in that they have tried to keep good relations with India as well. So China's not been able to, to make as many inroads into Bangladesh. Um, Nepal, though, is another country where China has made inroads and has um, been able to get involved in the politics and manipulate politicians, buy off politicians, plant stories in the media. This is something China just didn't do two decades ago. You know, for them, the politics of South Asia was too complicated. They, you know, acknowledged that this was India's turf, you know, uh, but now uh, they are getting involved. They are making concerted effort to increase their influence in these countries. So, what was what was that sort of strategic shift in in the minds of this the the Chinese government to sort of say, we're not actually going to cede this to to India exclusively anymore? What was the sort of impetus for them getting much more active and, in fact, making Pakistan a cornerstone of their BRI initiative? Well, I think it's because they can't right their their economy. It's growing, their military's growing, they're becoming more powerful. And so they have more resources and a greater ability to influence events outside of their direct periphery. Uh, so I think that's that's really a large part of it, the fact that they have the ability and resources to do that. Um, but I also think that they, um, you know, their, their uh, conflict with India has grown as U.S.-India relations have been closer. Um, they kind of see India, you know, as being the cat's paw for the United States. And so I think they're trying to put direct pressure on India 
and show that they can make life difficult for India, particularly on their uh, border, their disputed border, where, of course, they had a major uh, war crisis uh, just a few years ago in 2020. So I think it's a combination. They, they can do it. They have the resources, the ability, and they also want to demonstrate to India that they can make their life more difficult if India continues to um, enhance its relationship with the United States. There is a, a criticism from those on the left and the right um, about American overextension these days. And as we talk about, you know, relationships with Pakistan, with Afghanistan, with India, with Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, you know, the natural question comes up, well, how should we, forgetting China, how should we as America be prioritizing this region? What should sort of the ideal relationship between the United States look like with, let's say, Pakistan? You mentioned that we pulled some of our security assistance in 2018. Um, so how do you kind of think about this region in light of all of the other foreign policy priorities that we have? Well, I look at it country by country. I look at India, and I see that India has a critical role to play in the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy at encountering China. India really is the only country in South Asia um, and, you know, frankly, uh, throughout the broader Indo-Pacific that has the resources and the will to stand up to China. You know, we need India to be able to protect its borders and not let China enroach um, on their disputed borders. So it's very much in the U.S. interest to support India, to continue to grow that relationship in trade, technology, defense, uh, security, maritime cooperation across the board. Um, and in terms of Pakistan, again, I don't think that the U.S. should be you know, propping up the Pakistan military, you know, providing assistance that could go towards Pakistan's policy of supporting militants to protect its own interests. Um, that has not been helpful. But we should have um, a modicum of a relationship and, you know, some economic assistance um, and diplomatic engagement so that we don't completely lose Pakistan to Chinese influence. And then with regard to the other South Asian states, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh, Maldives, um, I think we, we should be engaging more in these countries and we should be coordinating our policies with India um, uh, toward these countries. Um, and India you know, is becoming more open to the U.S. Um, having strong bilateral relationships with these countries because it would rather have the U.S. <clears throat> excuse me, in the region than China. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that that's how I see uh, U.S. interest in the region, sort of country by country. Nargis, something that um, we have heard a lot uh, here in the United States is this argument that countries are partnering with China because they sort of have to or the U.S. isn't giving them a viable alternative, but that the reality is they'd much rather partner with the United States. I wonder how true is that? I mean, Looking, speaking for Afghans, like how much do they want to partner with the U.S. and how much do they want to partner with China? And is it true that America can kind of rely on this assumption that most countries would rather partner with us and they just sort of take China's aid when um, when they have to? Uh, well, as you know, um, every society is comprised of different groups and ideologies. So if you're making those assumptions, it's also important that which group you're talking about. Uh, if you're talking about 
militant group like Taliban, they definitely prefer to um, uh, collaborate with China uh, because China will never hold them to account, about, to account about the human rights violation, about the gender apartheid the policy that they have uh, implemented in Afghanistan, about the war crime that they are committing in Afghanistan, about you know, different things that they are doing for controlling people uh, in Afghanistan and about pro- not providing services to the people. Uh, so that's much more easier for them, and they have so much in common. Yes, despite all those ideological, religious, I would say, differences, but when it comes to in terms of ideology of controlling and ruling, you also see a lot of similar similarities uh, between between the two. So they would rather go with them. Uh, but if you're talking about the woman, which is 50% of Afghanistan population, the youth, which is more than 70% of Afghanistan population, the civil society, the media, and the emerging leaders, everybody prefers to, uh, to engage, still engage and collaborate with the U.S. Um, although we have a lot of criticisms and we feel betrayed with what happened to Afghanistan and what happened to us as partners and allies of U.S. on the ground that we're working in the last 20 years, but still we think that we have a lot in common with U.S. and China. Uh, democracy, freedom of expression, um, and uh, uh, women's rights, human rights, um, accountability, um, free media. So there is a lot that we have in common that we think is important uh, for societies, especially for the young generation that now they are connected and they see what kind of lifestyle and what kind of facilities and the, the normal life uh, the young generation in other countries are enjoying that uh, the young generation of Afghanistan do not have access to that. So that is naturally making us automatically more inclined to collaborate and count ourselves as partners of the U.S. in the China. Because China is not interested to collaborate with Afghan people. They, do, they are not having any kind of relation with women's group. They do not even recognize that there is a civil society and free media in Afghanistan. Even the previously, as I mentioned, they when, we, when they were engaged, it was mostly with the private sector in Afghanistan and with politicians and government officials, not with other groups. And now they're totally engaged with the Taliban because that's they find that uh, much more viable for themselves. So I think it's the case not only with mm-hmm. Afghanistan, but all the countries that they have young generation, they have women group, they have civil society, they have media. And even they don't have they don't have these structures. More most importantly, that with the connectivity that we have around the world today, the population, the people, are uh, allies of the U.S. because they want to make sure that they are the ones uh, choosing the leadership of the country, not being forced or imposed on them, freedom of expression, these things. So yes, they do have the majority of the uh, population of these countries and their allies, but the problem that we see is that U.S. is so much focused uh, in its competition uh, with China uh, and sometimes with some geopolitical interests that they, we feel that sometimes they get totally confused who is really their partner. What exactly, why people prefer U.S. over uh, uh, over China? For example, in Afghanistan, if we prefer U.S. over China because of all those reasons that I told you, and now all of a sudden we see actually U.S. violating and ignoring all those values it makes us in the question that why then should we count U.S. as our allies when they are not standing for any of these values? So I think for U.S. to be able to 
grow uh, uh, their partnership, to be able to have more support of the people in these countries. And because governments come and go, but people are there, it's important that they stick to the values that people know them for those. And they continue to work with their allies regardless of whether they are on the ground or not, whether they are in power on, uh, with power or not, because that's what China's doing. Even if somebody is not in power, they see them as their allies. They are investing for 20 years or 50 years until they come in power and they work with them. So that that kind of, I think, long-term relationship with allies and having um, uh, a proper understanding of who are the allies and working with those allies and then enabling them to make influence things and to be able to come and not at some point be part of decision-making, but then at some point be the decision-maker on the ground is important for the U.S. to do, but for all for those camps would cost with strategic patient and with investment that in most cases we don't see U.S. Uh, with that patient and um, and having very short-sighted intervention and policies, which is further damaging the credibility. This this issue of, of how can the U.S. effectively counter or defeat China without abandoning our values is something that I think is so critical to the foreign policy conversation that we're having. I think it's a, a fantastic point. Um, Lisa, I want to I want to make sure that we talk a little bit more about India. Um, so uh, you wrote earlier this year um, about tensions uh, in the line of actual control between India and China, um, noting the fear that China is attempting to contain India's growth by essentially forcing it to divert more resources in, into um, defending uh, its western border with Pakistan and its eastern border with China. I wonder, giving given this sort of consistently adversarial relationship between Pakistan and India and the rising relationship between Pakistan and China, um, how do you see proxy conflict between the United States and China potentially playing out in South Asia? Great. Let me first just um, comment on what Narkees just said, because she said it very eloquently, and it's so important that instead of uh, the U.S. seeing the fact that it does champion human rights, women's rights, civil society, spent 20 years building up the Afghan civil society, um, putting resources toward NGOs, working on media freedom, women's rights, et cetera. That is an advantage of the U.S. Uh, U.S. officials should never see that as a weakness in its foreign policy. And just as Nargi said, the Afghans um, value that the U.S., holds up civil society and human rights and women's rights. Um, and so that's that's a foreign policy and national security advantage that the U.S. holds over China. And absolutely, the U.S. Um, should never abandon those uh, principles when um, forming its policies toward Afghanistan. And by the way, Europe is in the same camp. And in some ways, we see the Europeans more forcefully supporting human rights than the United States right now, which is, for me as an American, um, very disappointing. Um, but I think that's the reality of what we see. So thank you for raising that, Nargis. Um, the idea of proxy conflict between the U.S. and China in South Asia, I think uh, I think we're really talking about Afghanistan, uh, maybe. Um, I, I don't see it happening because I think both the U.S. and the U.S. is not going to send troops to Afghanistan anytime soon unless something very drastic were to happen. I just don't think that there's an appetite in the United States for putting troops back into Afghanistan. China also uh, does not want to 
have any uh, troops in Afghanistan. Um, and they have sent some paramilitary forces to Tajikistan to protect that border to keep uh, extremists from coming across um, Afghanistan into Tajikistan. But they they have no desire to become militarily involved in Afghanistan. Um, but the Chinese also have no vision for Afghanistan. You know, the deals that they're making right now are, you know, really to to try to, you know, uh, getting good with the Taliban so that the Taliban will act against the ETIM, the um, East Turkestan Islamic Movement, uh, which, you know, China fears them creating an uprising um, in Xinjiang province. Um, so they they want uh, the Taliban to crack down um, on these people inside Afghanistan. And so when they talk about making these major investments in Afghanistan, um, they're trying to demonstrate to the Taliban that, uh, you know, they're going to be their best friends and uh, they're very important to the future of the country. But the reality is that, you know, these investments are unlikely to go very far. If you look at the Maize-Anak uh, copper mine, um, that China invested in, I think going back to 2008, it's really not been developed. It's it's not gone anywhere. Um, so I think we have to be very skeptical when we see China making these you know, promises about, you know, millions or hundreds of millions in investment um, in Afghanistan. The, the, the infrastructure is not there and the, the competence, you know, if, if, if the U.S. was unable to um, pour in major investment to developing the mines of Afghanistan during the 20 years of you know, pro-U.S. governments and when technical assistance was flowing into the country. There's no way that you, when you have an extremely incompetent Taliban government that you're going to see foreign investors pouring their money into Afghanistan. It's just not a foreign investor's uh, dream to to uh, be pouring in the investment there. So I think we should be very skeptical, and that the U.S. does not need to, um, you know, see China as a competitor um, in Afghanistan. That um, that we should be continuing to base our policies on U.S. national security interests um, in supporting women and girls. And, and focusing on that. So so I don't really see Afghanistan becoming a proxy conflict between um, the U.S. and China because, the, you know, Afghanistan does not have the resources and the investment potential um, for the two to really uh, compete in that way. Um, I think it's, it's more the U.S. Um, needs to stick to its principles and policies and galvanize the international community to uh, put pressure on the Taliban for its human rights abuses and for its uh, continued support for terrorism. Nargis, in light of America's uh, withdrawal uh, from from Afghanistan, what going forward do you see as the sort of ideal relationship between Afghanistan and the United States? Um, I mean, in terms of one thing that I want to touch upon and add up one before answering this question, Lisa, that has said, um, in terms of 
um, um, China having no uh, vision or um, policy for Afghanistan. Um, I believe one thing is very clear on China's part, that they want to have a totalitarian government in control in the countries that they're engaging because that is making their engagement much more easier. So ideally having a group like Taliban in power in Afghanistan is basically putting in power a group that is more uh, ideal partner for China than the US and its allies. And that's what has happened in case of Afghanistan and all other countries that you know, we are not investing in, uh, in, in, in democratic forces. Um, so I think they do have that vision. That's why they're so happy. I mean, yes, they are very much concerned about Taliban, about you know, the terrorism uh, um, uh, threat that they see from Afghanistan now and all those things, extremism as well. Uh, but despite that, if we put aside the terrorism and extremism and um, the religious differences that they see between themselves and the Taliban, other than these three, in all other areas, they are perfect partner for each other and they just can get along so well with each other work with each other. So in other countries that the totalitarian governments are coming in power and somehow the US is also collaborating and empowering them. Because remember, engagement also means that you're empowering those uh, regimes. And that means that they can continue for a longer period of time. So that means that you're basically indirectly supporting China's allies to be empowered rather than your own allies. That's one thing that we need to understand. The second thing about ideal uh, partnership I think we need to understand that we have common interests when we are talking about ally, uh, alliance and partnership uh, between Afghan people and the government of uh, of the of the US. Um, I mean, we are, yes, we are not saying that the US should not engage with the Taliban because they are the chapter authority right now uh, in the country. But we also do not want them that they continue providing incentives and do not hold Taliban to account. Well, just because they are they are afraid that China will build and then really stronger relationship with them, with, uh, with the Taliban, and then the US is going to be out of that. That will not happen easily because China is very much uh, cautious in terms of their relationship with the Taliban. But for, for the US going forward, the ideal situation is to invest on women groups uh, because that is natural ally that they have on the ground, although they unfortunately see us as weak partners that perhaps we cannot influence things but we can influence things. And that has shown in the last two years that how much pressure, despite not having any resources, not being in our country, not having any agency, being scattered all around the globe, still we have managed to put enough pressure on the government and as well as uh, on the US and as well as other other countries for not recognition of the Taliban. We strongly believe that if we wouldn't have had that pressure, they may not have publicly recognized the regime of Taliban, but they would have had a very different and much more closer relationship with the Taliban uh, than what they are having right now. So we are very influential because we understand the international politics now. The, the youth group is also very influential. I will give you a simple example that um, when the recent U.S. delegation had um, uh, uh, their engagement and their meeting with the Taliban Doha, um, the U.S. special invite for Afghan women, girls, and human rights a claim that she is engaging with the Taliban based on the demand of Afghan women. And I'm sure those of you that you're engaged in Afghanistan affairs, you saw the reaction of the young generation and the women, that everybody was like, we want to know who are these groups that they 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 they, they demanded this from you. 
we have no answer. None of those people that they actually, they had recommend, made that recommendation to them, to her came forward in social media and defended her. So she was under uh, a lot of criticism and scrutiny literally for one week. Uh, so that shows that, you know, like how vibrant and active the woman group and the young generation, the civil society and media is in Afghanistan. We have very vibrant media now, although they are not, they are having less presence inside Afghanistan, but many of them are now outside the country. They have reestablished themselves in Canada, in US and in European countries. And that's from where they are having their, they're using digital platform for uh, for their activities. Civil society is also reorganizing themselves. So I think these are the ideal partners for the youth to engage with and work with them. And slowly and gradually, these groups will become, once again, influential. Already we are influential outside, but within Afghanistan, uh, because people are going to rise against the Taliban, one way or the other. They don't have any other chance because in the last two years, people were quiet. Everybody was quiet. The world was hoping and waiting and watching, thinking that, okay, Taliban will form some sort of inclusive and representative government that we can just pick the box and see, yeah, it's done. They would respect women's rights with a lot of restriction, but at least they would allow girls to go to school and they would allow women to work. But then that we would say that, okay, Taliban have changed and we can work with Taliban. Now the situation is totally different. So that's why it will gradually and eventually it will bring about the world and the U.S. to engage back with Afghanistan and these groups and as well as the Afghan people to rise against the Taliban. But for us, what's more important is that we have a strategy to make sure that we continue our activities in terms of raising awareness, organizing ourselves and getting information on what is happening exactly on the ground in Afghanistan in terms of different terrorist groups' activities, expansion of extremism, engagement of the China, Iran, and other countries, so that in light of that, we can feed more information to policymakers in, in, in the U.S. so that that can shape their future policies towards Afghanistan. But in the meantime, engagement with those allies that they are still working for the same values is important for and, and the ideal partnership forward for the U.S., I would say. I want to end with a, a last question to to you, Lisa. So one of the reasons for the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in the first place was, of course, this sense that American sentiment was no longer in favor of maintaining a presence there. Um, obviously, we've seen through this conversation, as Nargis has reported, that our withdrawal um, was not only humiliating for us, not only resulted in um, yes, significant human rights issues for Afghans, um, significant Afghans uh, murdered by the terrorist attack that also murdered 13 American service members. Um, but it also created a long-term opening for for China that is now of significant concern to us. Um, what would you say to sort of everyday Americans who um, are generally maybe a little bit skeptical of American involvement abroad, um, who really are asking, you know, what is the reason why I should care that China is in South Asia? What is your argument to them as to why this really matters um, and should be um, should be important to them? Well, I think, you know, increasing Chinese influence anywhere should be a concern for American citizens, uh, American citizens who value our democracy, the freedoms that we enjoy, media freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, um, you know, equality uh, for all under the law. You know, these are uh, important values uh, for American citizens. These are not values that are important to China. And in fact, as Nargis has already pointed out, 
China uh, is pushing their form of authoritarianism, authoritarian government um, on other countries because it makes that it makes it easier for them to achieve their goals and objectives if they're dealing uh, directly with an authoritarian government. We see this happening in Africa, where they're increasingly influencing um, important upcoming leaders in these countries to be more interested in the party state mm-hmm. um, rather than, you know, multiple party democracies. So I think, you know, this is the reason that Americans need to care uh, what China is doing internationally, because ultimately it's going to upend support for the very, you know, foundational values, um, the U.S. Constitution, you know, on which our country is founded. And the more that China eats away at these uh, principles and systems of governance, democratic systems of governance throughout the world, uh, the easier it will be for them to, you know, influence events um, in, in different countries to the detriment of American interests. We know that China wants to undermine U.S. Uh, influence and power. And the other uh, concern that Americans should be worried about is increasing cooperation between Russia and China. Uh, we have seen Russia, uh, you know, flout international norms uh, by invading Ukraine. Uh, China has um, expressed its support for Russia. It, um, you know, they're increasingly operating together uh, in the maritime space with um, flight coordination to try to intimidate other countries like Japan and other U.S. allies. Uh, so, you know, every American should care what China is doing um, throughout the world. And this includes South Asia, where you have um, what the quarter of the, the world's population, you know, when you take India, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, you know, the, there is a, a large portion of the world's population uh, right there in South Asia. And it's uh, critical that the U.S. maintains its influence and that India maintains its uh, traditional uh, influence in this region. Thank you. Yeah, it sounds like you're you're drawing a very important point here, which is um, just as the U.S. retreat from Afghanistan potentially emboldened Putin, which I think it has, so too would a U.S. retreat from our our friends uh, in Ukraine embolden Xi. And so, you know, um, American interest uh, should be in maintaining sort of this um, this system and this um, this uh, you know rights based order that we have. Um, because it primarily benefits us. You know, our uh, our namesake, Senator Arthur Vandenberg, said that we need to care about sort of this American um, order, um, uh, quote, primarily for our own sake, um, that it is important for the world, but it is it is especially important um, for us here in America to maintain the rights that we have. Um, Nargis, Lisa, thank you so much. Um, I thought this was a fascinating conversation. I certainly learned a lot. I hope that our audience did as well. We really appreciate everything that both of you do to um, to fight for um, for human rights, to fight for a strong foreign policy, um, and um, and to, to to defend the values that we all hold dear. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World. We hope you found today's exploration of competition with China informative and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. To stay up to date on our work and connect with us, subscribe to our newsletter, Beyond the Water's Edge, and follow us on X at, at Vandenberg Co. You can also visit our website at vandenbergcoalition.org for additional resources and exclusive content. Until next time, I'm Carrie Filippetti, and this is the Vandenberg Coalition's Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World.